You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition and their new Centerfire Rifle Ammunition Terminal Ascent. Now, the Terminal Ascent has a slipstream polymer tip that helps flatten trajectories and initiates low-velocity expansion at longer ranges. The Terminal Ascent gives you match-grade long-range accuracy in a bonded hunting bullet and it comes in a variety of cartridges including the 6.5 Creedmoor, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 28 Nosler, the 7mm Remington Mag 30-06 and the 300 Win Mag. If you want to find more information about the Terminal Ascent, visit federalpremium.com and while you're there, check out It's Federal Season, the official podcast of Federal Ammunition. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson. And today, we have another awesome episode. We're going to be talking with Adam Janke. Uh, He is an assistant professor at the University of Iowa State. He also works with the um, Iowa State Extension uh, offices where he is a wildlife specialist. He works with the Department of Natural Resources in the Ecology Manage- Ecology and Management Department. So this dude wears several hats, and after talking with him, he, uh, you know, I'll just say it, he's kind of a specialist in what we're going to talk about today. And uh, the top, the main topic of the discussion here on this episode is how farming practices impact wildlife and we kind of are all over the board we don't really get too detailed into one specific thing we kind of hop in an area hop out hop in hop out and and try to cover as much as we possibly can in the uh, short period of time that we were given Um, this is a topic that you could literally talk days and days about and as Adam mentions in this episode um, the research that he does takes a lot of time uh, a lot of energy goes into it, and sometimes the the research, uh, you know, throws them curves curveballs, and uh, you know that's why he loves what he does, and that's why this is kind of a really exciting podcast. And I hope hope you guys uh, enjoy it. Uh, before we get into today's episode, though, I'm going to throw a real quick commercial at you, and it is for Quiet Cat electric bikes. Now, have you ever considered using an electric bicycle to get deeper into the backcountry? Quiet Cat is the leader in off-road electric mountain bikes and will guarantee greater accessibility to areas that are impossible or extremely difficult to access. Compatible with an assortment of accessories, Quiet Cat is here to outfit your next adventure. Haul more gear in and haul your game out with Quiet Cat. You can go check out their full lineup of products at quietcat.com, www.quietkat.com. All right, so that's the commercial. We're done with that. Let's get into today's episode where we talk with Jared, or excuse me, (laughs) I'm an idiot, Adam Janke of the University of Iowa about the impact farming has on wildlife. All right, from the University of Iowa State or Iowa State University out of Ames, we're going to be talking today with Adam Janke. Adam, how are we doing, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, um, and, and today, you know, for the people who have already seen the title of this episode, uh, we're going to be talking about farming practices and how they impact wildlife across the state. And I know a lot of these, uh, a lot of the the topics that we're going to cover today and talk about, you know, can 
you know, go past the boundaries of Iowa into all the, you know, states throughout the, the nation or Midwest. But uh, before we get into the meat and potatoes of this episode, why don't you talk to us a little bit about what you do at Iowa State University? Sure. Yeah. So I actually have two titles. One uh, title I carry is assistant professor. That just means I do research and a little bit of classroom instruction here on campus. And that's in wildlife ecology and wildlife conservation. For my research, I work with grad students, and I always just say we study where birds live on farms Mm -hmm. uh, to just kind of make it simple, and that really is what we do. So we study pheasants and quail and ducks and and, uh, grassland-nesting songbirds and other things that live on farms and and try to understand where we can find opportunities to have bird habitat on uh, profitable, productive farms that are good for water quality and soil and all the other things. Okay. And then the other part of my job is I'm the extension wildlife specialist, which means I just have responsibilities for wildlife education through our extension mission of the university to try to get science-based information out into communities across the state. So in that role, I do everything from landscaping for wildlife to, um, you know, managing forested acres for wildlife habitat and everything in between. I just kind of like dabble in a bunch of different things about wildlife and wildlife conservation. Okay. Is that like for research purposes or is that like to assist the state of Iowa in managing their public grounds? Yeah. So, well, and even just private citizens really is the focus on the extension side. So, uh, on ex- on the extension side, it's not research. It's just strictly education. So, like, actually, it's something that I was thinking, like, I do a lot of education on chronic wasting disease, you know, and that's just a, you know, a challenge that faces wildlife and wildlife enthusiasts in the state. And so, although I definitely am not a disease researcher or a disease ecologist, um, I I work with those people here on campus to get their knowledge and their research out to the people across the state through our extension mission. So my own research and my own focus and primary interests are in bird habitat. Um, But then I, you know, am trained just generally as a, as a wildlife ecologist or wildlife biologist. Okay. So that's what you went to school for was like uh, wildlife biology. Okay. And ecology. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Yep. I went to, I always, it was funny you were saying other Midwestern states. I was like, yeah, I've lived in most of them. And you're right. What applies for Iowa agriculture and wildlife conservation definitely applies in uh, all the Midwestern states where I went to school to get degrees in wildlife conservation before landing here for the work. I got you. Cool, man. So you're in it, right? You're in it every day. (laughs) The research, you're in it. You know, like you are, you are what I would call an expert of, you know, what, of the topic we're going to be covering today. I'd accept student. Uh, I definitely (laughs) spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff. I don't, I, you know, the, the cool thing and the challenging thing about wildlife, I learned something new every day. So yes, but so I'm sure many, many folks, uh, many listeners that have been driving tractors or doing TSI work or whatever wildlife habitat work, uh, for years would know more about many things than I, but yeah, I, I definitely spend the majority of my time thinking about, especially the way that we can have wildlife on profitable farms right. because, you know, in, in the heartland, um, that's what it takes is we got to find these opportunity areas for wildlife habitat so we can have pheasants and quail and bobolinks and, and others, and still, you know, derive the living that many, many islands do off of their land. Right. So there's so many starting points for this conversation, but I want to I want to talk about something. Uh, you you mentioned you're out in the field all the time and, and you're you're in it. Um, I saw a first. I had a first, uh, and I spend a lot of time outside throughout the year, whether it's hunting or fishing or shed hunting or looking for mushrooms or just being outside observing mm-hmm. nature. Right. I, I think I, I googled it. I think I saw a black mink. But it was a okay. little bit bigger than the size of a squirrel. And it ran like a mink, but it was, and I had to take a, like a triple look at it. I'm like, what, what is that thing? Because at first I thought it was a cat, but then it, the, the torso was way too long to be a cat. And then it had yeah, a, a long, long skinny. Yeah. And then it had a longer tail, but it was like bigger than I think a mink. Is there any other animals in Iowa that fit that description? 
Yeah, well, I was actually thinking that maybe you were going to go say it was smaller, and there are definitely members of the mink family that are smaller. Yeah. Um, like uh, we call them mustelids. Um, yeah. But between in that family, between mink, there's nothing between mink and river otter, except a really rare species called fisher. And there was a sighting of a fisher a few years ago in northeastern Iowa. But yeah. they're they live like in the far northern, right. um, like the like the north woods, and that would be pretty rare. I would, I mean, so and then and then smaller, like the smallest is like um, uh, short-tailed weasel, which yeah. are like the size of a cigar, and those are all related. So you can yeah. kind of like step up through the different mustelids. Um, but I don't like, I could, I, th- I could see a mink being described as black pretty often. I mean, they do have a really dark coat. Yeah. Um, and then, cause uh, it the ran like an otter. Me seems about... I mean, it, yeah, I thought yeah. it was either, I thought it was a mink, a cat or an otter the way it was yeah. run- bouncing, uh, through this field. And then I got a better look at it and it was minkish. Like uh, the first thing that popped into yeah. my gut was mink. So I don't know. Yeah. I bet that's what it is. They're pretty common across the state, mink. Um, and then, like, I, I, in fact, I've I've confused on a trail camera actually uh, once. I had what ended up being a mink run by it, but I w- I just had myself convinced it was in an otter, and it yeah. was in a pretty rare spot for an otter. And I showed it to a mammologist here on campus, and he was like, "Well, it's a mink, but without any size reference, it is really hard to tell the difference because behavior-wise, they have that same kind of like." like uh, almost caterpillar like gait where yeah. they're like, you know, they like arch their back yep. and, and their hind legs and cause they're just so long and skinny. So yep, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, that, that's what I'd say. They're definitely the most common. That's probably the simplest answer. And, and that seems to fit your description. Yeah. And it was uh, interesting cause I, I love it when I see things that I've never seen in my 40 years of life. And that was yeah. something that was a first for me and I got pretty excited about it. And just the other day, uh, man, it was when it was really cold outside, I saw a bird that I've never seen before. It was red and blue and gray. And I mean, it wasn't like your typical song bird. I would say it was the size of a finch, but it was just like the most vibrant colors I've, I'd ever seen. Hmm. And I was like, I didn't have my bird book with me. I didn't have it. It was up in my office and I was just like what is this thing? And I, I Googled it and I couldn't, I couldn't find what I was looking for. So anyway, red and blue and yeah. red and blue and gray. It was, it was crazy. And it landed on my uh, back deck for about one second. And then it flew away a little bit bigger huh. than a hummingbird, but it flew away. Like it, it had the features of like a, a sparrow or a finch. You've got me stumped yeah. on that one. I, this is <laughs> this, you know, this time of year to, there's not a lot of bird diversity. I mean, we have some yeah. remarkable bird diversity when warblers are migrating through, um, especially in forested areas uh, during the spring migration, like in May. Um, but it's too early for like that really complicated suite of species. So I can't really think what would be yeah. red, blue, or gray. I'll have to keep thinking on that. You know, are you familiar with siskins? You know, siskins kind of have a um, kind of a drab appearance, but they look a lot like a finch. Okay. And then, um, of course, house finches and purple finches can both be seen in Iowa during the wintertime. And they fit the size description and the red and, to a lesser extent, gray part. But I can't think of anything that would have blue. Not a lot of... Yeah. I don't know. It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool looking. Yeah. That Um, is cool. Yeah. It's fun to see that kind of stuff for sure. All right. So... Let's get into today's topic because there's a lot to cover and you got a meeting in about 45 minutes and, and I want to I want to cover as much as we possibly can in this. So when you think of Iowa, you think of like the breadbasket for America, right? We ha- we're, sure. we're we're in the top of all categories, soybeans, um, multiple different, uh, you know, ag like, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, soybeans, corn, right? And then, uh, you know, yep. obviously uh, different varieties Egg, of agriculture. Pig. Yep. C- yep. Cows, pigs, uh, livestock yep. of all different kinds. Um, and all of these impact the landscape in some way, shape, or form, right? And then we have to, you know, and and from what I've heard with rules and regulations and how they're formed and and the impact that all these these things have on wildlife, it's almost like, we have to make sure that the agriculture and the livestock 
the decisions are made for them first, and then we'll see if we can fit everything else in because that's the moneymaker for our state, right? So my, my question to, to you is um, when, when rules and regulations, like to start off, kind of like when rules or regulations are, are and, and restrictions and all these things are, are talked about, how much weight does wildlife and uh, the animals that live on this, in these ecosystems across the state play in decision-making for the, the agricultural and livestock? Yeah. Well, it's a big, that's definitely a big question, and it's certainly challenging. Like you mentioned, you know, uh, agriculture kind of defines the core land use of the state. I always say about 82% of Iowa's land area is in production ag, mm-hmm. um, and that would include pasture and row crop acres. And then the difference, of course, that remaining 18% is all the roads and all the cities and all the forests. I mean, it's yeah. pretty, in lakes and rivers and everything else, I mean, it's pretty remarkable, the footprint. So, any wildlife work we do definitely interacts with and intersects with agriculture, as you mentioned. In terms of like how wildlife interact with policy, I mean, I guess a few thoughts come to mind. I mean, there's like land or environmental regulations and associated policy, like clean water work, clean air, um, and, and, and then like, yeah, those, those kind of regulations. And then the other thing is like direct impacts of wildlife on agriculture, like for disease considerations. And so there's a couple of ways we could probably take the question. The first one that came to mind is like, well, people definitely think about wildlife a lot on that, like disease interface thing. Like we do have to understand how animals and livestock interact and how that could potentially affect, you know, wild animals. Like for example, with deer and chronic wasting disease, uh, we have to consider, you know, what, livestock facilities that raise members of the deer family could impact our herds, you know, so that's like a real consideration. And then there's, uh, you know, the, if folks were around in, I think it was 2015 for the big uh, avian influenza outbreak, that was a, you know, interaction between wildlife and domestic animals. So there's definitely some considerations there that people really think about wildlife. And then the other thing is like examples of like, considerations for wildlife and wildlife habitat and farm landscapes and sort of the bright side of that example i think that comes to mind is is like the monarch efforts for monarch butterfly conservation right now and sure we may you know if it's iowa sportsman's podcast we may not think oh what's a monarch mean but monarch habitat is really good habitat for northern bobwhites it's really good habitat for pheasants uh and in many places monarch habitat can be on the you know, borders of wetlands that are really important for ducks and, and, um, and wild turkeys may forage or raise their broods in, in grass and environments that are good for the monarch. And so like in that way, you know, there's agriculture that's really lined up behind um, understanding factors that have driven to uh, driven the decline of monarch populations in that 82% of ag lands in the state and uh, trying to address that by putting in this case, monarch habitat back onto the edges of those farms. And so that's kind of like a, a bright spot consideration that, that kind of comes to mind. Um, you are definitely right that there is kind of the constant, you know, push and pull um, where we can find uh, wildlife habitat on working landscapes um, can sometimes be, um, sorry, there's, a class transitioning outside. I don't know if you can hear that. That's all right. Um, so, some, so where we can find wildlife habitat in working landscapes can sometimes be threatened by, you know, expansion of agriculture. We've certainly seen that um, conversion of grassland areas um, from pasture, from conservation reserve program or others into row crops. And so there's like that kind of push and pull yeah. uh, that we're always trying to work around. But I guess what excites me is like, there's promising examples. The monarch example is a really good one. The other one that gets me really excited because I'm a duck nut is uh, wetlands, you know, and wetlands are really good for water quality and they are also uh, really good for, for waterfowl habitat. And so if we can find places to put wetlands into our ag landscapes to address water quality challenges that we have there, we'll also be growing wood ducks and blueing teal and mallards and others uh, for wildlife associated recreation, like hunting or bird watching. Yeah. So the kind of getting into like a little bit more specific questions here, obviously row crops 
take up the largest, you know, yep. footprint in the state and probably have if I mean, does that have the biggest impact on wildlife here in the state of Iowa? Well, it definitely takes up a lot of land area for sure. Um, there's good and bad with that row crop stuff. And I don't know of like what direction you want to go exactly, but like the good is like, it's that in Oak forest is probably the reason we grow big deer in Iowa. Like yeah. it's really good forage. Um, and that's true of a lot of things, you know, um, waterfowl populations really benefit from waste grain, pheasants, Northern bobwhites, wild Turkey, like a lot of organisms benefit from it. The challenge of course is, yeah, it does take up a lot of area in like there, there isn't necessarily a lot of like good habitat that comes with a typical row crop field. It's just like along the margins. So, um, yeah, you could, there's like, there's good and bad, I guess, associated with it. Um, depending on, depending on where it is. I'll tell you what, let's, let's go down this path. Let's talk about what, what, um, agriculture or, uh, or livestock, uh, kind of, um, operations have the biggest impact on wildlife, whether, cause you know, you hear obviously, um, back in, back when I was a kid, I can remember there'd be these buffer strips, uh, between the creeks or along the fence rows. And now I see, I, I drive down the same roads as an adult and I don't see those buffer strips anymore. Right. They're, they're yeah. farming right up to the end of everything, or they're taking fence rows out or they're tear. Um, even some of the terraces are removed and they're putting in, uh, drainage, right. Uh, or tile. And, uh, you know, you hear, you hear things about, uh, uh, hog lots dumping, you know, their, their hog waste into creeks and rivers and, and things like that. So I guess what I'll do is I'll just kind of pass to you and maybe we can talk about what are some of the things in the state of Iowa that impact wildlife the most. Okay. Yeah. And so the, um, I'm trying to think like define defining impacts, you know, yeah. it's so hard to measure like what isn't there necessarily, yeah. you know, like give me a section of land and we, you know, we can talk about what is or isn't there, but I guess what your comment about like the buffer strips makes me think of is like, yeah, those are the examples of like where we find wildlife habitat on a farm, like coexisting right. with, with production operations. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love to like kind of work through those. And like I mentioned, that's kind of what my research is all about. And so a couple of examples, you mentioned like the buffer strips is a really good example of, um, you know, a a conservation practice in ag landscapes that are really good. I've heard it put very simply, I've never met a stream that didn't need a buffer. And I like that. I think that's really true. And I think wildlife would benefit from that because we find that many species of birds, um, butterflies and other wildlife that are found in ag landscapes really take advantage of those, um, that perennial vegetation, grassland vegetation along rivers and streams. And so that's a really good example of uh, a conservation practice that's a win-win for both agriculture and wildlife. So a positive impact in that yeah. way. So another positive r- impact. Real quick, oh, go ahead. Real quick, you know, yeah. well, there's been studies uh, done in the past, and I think um, we're starting to see a little bit more of a positive. Um, uh, a positive view, you know, the loss of pheasant habitat, you know, the, the research, yep. uh, and, you know, and I'm sure that the loss of those buffer strips throughout the years have, um, played, you know, or, or grasslands or putting more, um, land into row crop have, imp- have, um, affected that pheasant population in its decline. But at the same time, I've heard recently that, uh, there's more, I guess, farming practices there's been more education given to farmers about, you know, Hey, you add these buffer strips, you're going to get less erosion. Your soil is going to stay, you know, all these things. So, um, what's that education? Like, how does the research that you do not only get passed to like the department of, uh, conservation, but also to the farmers that are working this land? Yep. That's a great question. And I think that's what it's all about is like trying to help the people that have the most influence over the land understand like what 
where the opportunities are, like where where we can do right by by water, by soil, and by wildlife. And so, yeah, at Extension, we definitely are talking about that a lot. I also know, like, Iowa Soybean Association does some really nice work on this with water quality and also the monarch butterfly example. Um, and uh, Iowa corn growers do the same. Uh, there are just some really nice examples of, of educational efforts that are trying to elevate the uh, stories of the importance of those types of perennial practices on farms. And so like here at Iowa State, like we had this research project over the last decade or so about prairie strips, where they take about 10% of a row crop field out of row crop production and plant it back to native prairie. And uh, that results in like a like three times increase in pollinators and and uh, drastic increases in bird populations and, and in these in these farm fields. It's not going to like restore prairie chickens to Iowa by any stretch of the imagination, but it's an it's it's a conservation practice that can take make really small changes, only 10% of the crop acres in a field, and have really disproportionate positive impacts on wildlife habitat, and also address water quality and soil erosion. So those are those are like the kind of messages that we try to get out to people is like look. It's not managing your farm for wildlife habitat or for for uh, production. There's these opportunities to do both. Yeah. And I like that you brought up the example from like history. You know, like I always say, many of these farmland wildlife species, like like uh, pheasants, northern bobwhites, white-tailed jackrabbits, and others that have really declined across Iowa in the last 40, 50 years, were historically just byproducts of the way that people farmed the land. And the way they farmed the land was to leave weedy fence rows, have small grain fields, have pastures, uh, have idle areas uh, like fallow fields and things like that. And that just created really good habitat for these early successional species of birds that uh, we came to really like as a game species. And so uh, we can get back to a lot of that by finding those places like buffer strips, prairie strips or, or riparian buffers along rivers and streams. Uh, to have that habitat back in our working landscape that's good for the farmer and good for the for the for the wildlife okay so before i cut you off there you were getting ready to jump to another another one yeah i was going to talk about grazing um you know you were talking about like what are the impacts of wildlife like you know we always like to remind folks that there have been grazing animals in iowa's grasslands for like thousands of years yep and so in many ways like wildlife conservationists and and livestock producers have a lot in common in that we both want to see more grass on the landscape and we want to see that grass you know support livelihoods and so um particularly systems that do like rotational grazing that creates more uh diversity in the density of grasses that are found out there in the pasture uh, can be really good for wildlife, including many game species. And so, um, you know, I did my PhD in South Dakota and out there, like the mantra is kind of like take half, leave half in terms of the for- grass forage. And that just creates a huge amount of uh, grassland habitat for pheasants and prairie chickens and sharp-tailed grouse that we have up there. Um, here, because we have a little bit more precipitation, people can get away with like a little taking more than a little bit more than half. But those rotational grazing systems we find regenerate the soil better. They uh, they protect the plants. You have like a stronger forage base, uh, and then they also create really good wildlife habitat. So we, when I was going to say that, we were talking about like practices that impact wildlife. Grazing, as a general rule, is pretty good for wildlife, especially if it's not doesn't look like a golf course at the end of the grazing season, and especially practices that create a diversity of vegetation densities, like rotational grazing through different paddocks in the pasture, can be really good for a bunch of different species of wildlife. Yeah. How does, as a researcher, you know, you got to come up with a hypothesis and, and then you got to find the, you know, any type of, uh, research, uh, proper research has to have variables and, you know, you switch all these things up when it comes to researching things like rotational grazing, uh, and you know, any other type of research that you do, like how difficult is it and how many actual variables are there to deal with? Because, you know, some years you can have more rain and you can't control that. 
right? Sure. Uh, and less yeah. rain. So, yeah. so how do you guys um, deal with that? And then at the same time, come up, come out with a qualified statement to, to send yeah. to the masses. No, oh, you got it. I mean, that, that is the challenge. That's why that is what we do is we try to like figure out how to deal with all the variability in these systems. Um, like two things that come to mind, you mentioned the environmental variability. It's wet one year, not the next. We have a study right now in southeastern Iowa that we were looking at pheasant nesting in cover crop fields. And the two years we did that study, it was like not ideal conditions for growth of cover crops. And so that like constrains our ability to understand how pheasants may respond in years that are more favorable to cover crops. And so it, that is a, just a constant challenge that we deal with. And when we communicate our science, we just try to be intentional about saying, like talking about those limitations and knowing they're out there. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's a real challenge in wildlife research is wildlife are really good at hiding from us. And so sometimes what wildlife biologists recommend isn't always what sort of intuitively, um, like, appears to be the case because, uh, for example, um, people see trumpeter swans on big ponds often, like especially during the winter time. And so some people from the general public think that because they see trumpeter swans out in wide open, deep ponds in the middle of the winter, that must mean that's what trumpeter swans like, right? And what in reality is those trumpeter swans use those, sure, during the wintertime to overwinter, and that's fine. And they find those open water areas, and they mostly feed in the cornfields. But what trumpeter swans really need is shallow wetlands where they can uh, have their nests and raise their young that feed mostly on wetland vegetation and, and insects as they're growing. And so the what is intuitively apparent that trumpeter swans like big, deep, open lakes is not actually what a trumpeter swan needs when we start to like break down and really closely examine the habitat needs of the species in this case. And so that's a challenge that we have all the time in, in wildlife education and wildlife research is like what meets the eye may not always be the case. And so what we spend so much of our time and all my graduate students and, and all of the other students at Iowa State wildlife research, uh, what we spend our time doing is trying to like measure things that we can't directly observe. Like, how do you know there weren't pheasants there? Like, were they hiding from you or did you miss them? Did you, did you not do the survey at the right time of year or the right uh, time of the day? And how can you ensure that you're getting your best estimates um, of whatever it is that you're studying? So I really like your questions. They're really like, um, a depth question, an important question that, that wildlife, professional wildlife researchers spend a lot of our time uh, trying to overcome those, those challenges to yeah. understanding these animals and making recommendations that are going to impact them. Gotcha. One thing that just popped into my head, and um, my, both my grand, grandfathers have long since passed, but they, um, they both died of um, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, right? And Mm-hmm. What the theory was from the doctor was they got that because of years of using um, farming chemicals, whether it was an insecticide or a fertilizer without any type of protection, right? So just years of that absorbing into their hands and in their lungs and just obviously not good for for the body. Now, when when I ha- has when you spray a field for weeds, Right. I mean, you're killing everything uh, that's that's in that area. What kind of um, impact does spraying and fertilizer have on the surrounding environments? Yeah, well, uh, there's a couple of different ways. I mean, it. Many of many modern pesticides, like, and I, I'll use the term pesticide to include herbicide, fungicide, insecticide, and, and the like. The you know three most common used right. pesticides in agriculture. Most modern pesticides are pretty specific. So fortunately, they don't really, like, like they wouldn't really kill everything. Like, okay. although I wouldn't want to take a shower in glyphosate, right. which is the active ingredient, like Roundup, you know, although I wouldn't want to take a shower in glyphosate myself, um, you know, occasional exposure for wildlife, particularly like vertebrates like us. Uh, it's probably not too directly consequential. The real impacts of something like glyphosate, and you mentioned that like, it kills everything. Well, it definitely kills everything that's a plant. And that definitely has been to the detriment of many wildlife because 
uh, weedy fields when your grand grandparents were growing up, like weedy crop fields were the norm and all of that different, those different weed seeds and different plants provided more food sources for wildlife and also better habitat like in the fields. And today, if you look at a cornfield, right, it's like one, one plant is growing there. It's corn, right? And there isn't any sort of extra structure. There isn't any sort of extra food production going on out there. And that's just, I mean, that's just the reality of the system. They're, of course, trying to get those to be as efficient as they possibly can. And, and yeah, wildlife definitely historically would have been more common in, in ag fields than they are today. Um, the other, like, insecticides and fungicides, there are some impacts, particularly to aquatic life, that people consider. And, of course, that is, it is regulated um, when people follow the instructions and things. And so we just encourage, we go out of our way to encourage people to follow regulations about drift and, and, um, uh, you know, buffer widths and, and all sorts of things to try to protect wildlife from exposure. In terms of fertilizer impacts, um, there, those are challenges as well, particularly as it relates to water quality. And so we have challenges with the timing of nutrient application and nutrients running off into our waterways. And then that those nutrients in the waterways cause like imbalances that lead to like harmful algal blooms and harmful algal blooms can directly kill wildlife and then just aren't good for aquatic ecosystems generally. So, um, yeah, those are definitely pretty consistent challenges The the go to example from this, you know, is the DDT era of, you know, the 1960s yeah. and it was eventually banned in the 70s. Um, and that was like that was worst case scenario of a, of a relatively broad insecticide that was used very commonly in a bioaccumulated. So it had, you know, negative impacts, animals that never even got exposed to DDT themselves directly, it would accumulate in their bodies like bald eagles and, and uh, lead to complete reproductive failure. So there are a ton of people very concerned about this. We call them ecotoxicologists, uh, people that study toxins in the environment, and they're trying to prevent another DDT episode. Unfortunately, we haven't had anything uh, on that scale since since DDT was banned. Yeah. So I guess this is going to be kind of a high-level question, and I'll, uh, I'll kind of explain it as I ask it, but how fragile is is our our ecosystem and you can just use the state of iowa as an example with you know if if we plow a field and there's no mice in this field right then obviously if there's no mice then the predators have nothing to eat or the the hawks and the eagles like what's like how fragile is it and how how big or how far can that domino effect go yeah well it's a great question um i mean we, we do we probably live in if not the perhaps one of the most modified states in the United States uh, because of that 82% of production ag. Um, and, and the species that we have that have been able to survive here are pretty resilient to the changes that we have. And so we could, so, so I guess if you take a species approach to answer your question, um, it would very much depend. Some species are very sensitive to, to changes in their environment and would not be found anymore. I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head. The easiest example is, you know, greater prairie chickens used to be found everywhere in Iowa. But as soon as we, you know, turned over all the prairie and made it row crop, prairie chickens were reduced to South Dakota and Nebraska where they still have enough grassland to survive. And we have a few in southern Iowa, like in Ringgold County, where they've been reintroduced. And so uh, a species like that just can't hang, like it can't handle the amount of disturbance and that 82% production ag, like just will not work for a chicken. Yeah. Uh, but we have like counterexamples of species that are pretty resilient and can actually hang on. And, um, you know, uh, northern bobwhites are an example of that. They can't hang on when there's like way too much agriculture or way too much forest, actually. They like that kind of middle ground. Um, but they are a species that definitely thrives on farms. Um, I did my master's degree studying northern bobwhites on farms in Ohio, and um, we never stepped foot on public lands. I think there was like one landowner on the on, in the study that was managing his land for bobwhites, and everybody else was just farming, dairy farmers, row crop farmers, beef producers, and others. 
they were just farming and Bob Whites just lived on the margins. And so in those cases, the balance was in favor of Bob Whites because there was a diversity of habitat types. There were weedy fence rows and uh, idle areas and, and, and the like. And that diversity created a place for for that wildlife species. Other wildlife species we find here, you know, yeah, are pretty resilient to to the changes we've seen then we've definitely lost some stuff. And there's a long list of stuff that we've we've lost, unfortunately, um, or stuff that is really rare that would have historically been uh, much more common yeah. because of because they are more sensitive to those changes in their environment. So yeah. ch- prairie chickens are the first one that come to mind. But, um, you know, there, of course, used to be elk and bison and pronghorn and sharp-tailed grouse and um, all those species were lost because of the drastic changes to the environment. Yeah, which is crazy, right? And you think about it, it's like yeah. it's it's not that long ago when, yeah. you know, buffalo and all the other animals that you mentioned used to be in Iowa, right? Like a couple hundred yeah. years, that's it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is crazy. another question I had, I, I had is, um, and I think I just lost it, which is going to drive me crazy. I had I had to make a comment and, and not just go right in, into the question. <laughs> Um, so we'll, we'll kind of move into, uh, I guess I'll let you move into it. What about, what about water, clean water? Um, because for a while there, uh, we had, um, things like there was, there was little to no regulation and this was several years ago, uh, on how, uh, cattle or hog operations could get rid of the, the waste in there and it made its way into the water and it would kill fish and then the, the birds would eat the fish and, or other things, and then they would die. So has, what kind of impact does, uh, I guess, livestock have on, on the landscape? Yeah. Well, just, I'm sorry that I always say like, it depends. I mean, that's just like the most unsatisfying answer in an interview ever, but like, I guess, you know, two directions of effects, like the livestock that are on grassland ecosystems, like, you know, sheep, goats, and cows that are grazing in, in pastures or in like open wooded, wooded, uh, wooded pastures, uh, that that's a net positive, right? Like I would much rather have a pasture with cows that even maybe occasionally access the stream and such, uh, than to have more row crop acres. I mean, so I guess, like I said earlier, the wildlife biologist and the grazer or the rancher have a lot in common. Um, but the, the, yeah, the challenge with manure in this state is a real challenge because, um, livestock raised on concrete or, you know, in barns and in, um, production operations like we see with swine and chickens and, and other poultry right? confinements. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for the word. Um, they produce a lot of manure and that manure has got to go somewhere and that manure ends up on row crop fields. Um, here again, just like the pesticide story, there are, you know, there's regulations and management that, that should prevent the most detrimental negative impacts of those practices. But like, you know, just a few weeks ago, the things we don't like to see is like spreading manure on frozen fields. And, you know, you're driving down the highway and you see, a white field out there and it's just covered with, with manure. Well, as soon as that snow melts and the ground is frozen, like it runs off into the water and we can have bacteria contamination and other things that impact, as you mentioned, yeah. uh, terrestrial wildlife and mostly aquatic wildlife. So yeah, it's definitely a challenge. And in a state with as many livestock as we have, it's, uh, increasingly a challenge. Um, it, this is a course where people need to be very mindful of the regulations and, um, and yeah, try to minimize those impacts. So that's, that's the, it depends. I, like I said, I would take grazing ruminants, cows, sheep, and goats on pasture any day as a net positive for wildlife. That's definitely less true for, for other species of, of, uh, livestock that we have in the state. Okay. Here's my, here's my question. I just wrote it down. Uh, it's not really a question, I, but all right. So we've seen, you know, like how animals have evolved throughout the millennia, right? Just yeah. like all this different ev- evolution. And then something yeah. happens to their environment where yeah. they, uh, farming, for example, um, livestock, and just like this this 200-year, however, you know, the, the man comes in and establishes this giant footprint on the landscape. Have you guys, through your research, seen any type of, um, this is kind of a weird question, but like, escalated evolution to cope with 
this new landscape that these animals have to live in? Yeah, it's not a weird question at all. It's a great question. And there's a couple of things that I was thinking as you were stating the question. Um, we would, what we would probably say, most of the species that have responded and been able to survive in these systems, it's not necessarily that we would call that like evolution at the timescale that we've seen it playing out here, but like rather a capacity for adaptation, which probably evolved over thousands and thousands of years. Like, so I study wetlands a lot, for example, in wetlands, surprisingly, when you go out into a wetland, you find that they are equally diverse in really intensively farmed landscapes as they are in what we would call like pristine landscapes, like areas where it's like all pasture or all prairie surrounding the wetland. And what the theory on that actually is that those wetland ecosystems, because they go dry so often, or they have fire, or they had grazing herds of bison or native Americans, you know, out in them or using them or manipulating them in some way. Um, that creates this really rugged environment that these organisms have always lived in. So they've always had what we call this adaptive capacity to deal with all of the disturbances. And so many species probably already had this like basically portfolio of uh, adaptations that they could use to solve the challenges presented by the modern distribution and abundance of people and how extensive we've modified the land, especially in a place like Iowa. So some species just like, it was like cooked into their code. They did well. Some species couldn't adapt. And that was like, I said with the prairie chickens, like they couldn't deal with it and gone. Like the prairie chickens are gone and a bunch of other ones. And then there's like one other middle ground that I thought where you were maybe going with your questions, where we talk about, maladapted behaviors that's kind of just an annoyingly big word to just say like behaviors that an animal thinks will be helpful but really are not and uh we find this in some some instances where animals probably evolved to seek out certain characteristics like for example of uh lakes that they thought would be well okay here i'll sorry let me let me take this towards a row crop example. So pheasants or quail evolved to seek out certain uh, characteristics of vegetation to put their nests in in the spring. And so to a pheasant or quail, a uh, cover crop field might look like really good nesting habitat. But then they go into that nesting habitat because it's this growing cereal rye and it's just like growing, you know, three feet tall in early spring, it just seems like it's going to be a perfect place to hide a nest for 26 days. And then boom, all of a sudden the planter comes overhead and it kills them on the nest or it breaks up the, the eggs on the nest. That's what we call a maladapted behavior. The pheasant or quail picked it because they thought it looked really good, ah, okay. but in their evolutionary life history, they never had a scenario where something looked really good. And then all of a sudden a big, whatever, 40, 40 foot, implement was drug yeah. over their head. Yeah. And so those animals haven't quite figured out how to deal with all of these changes in their environment. So those are kind of the three levels. Like one, they could just be like really adaptable and just kind of like go with the flow. We see that with lots of animals, wild turkey and white-tailed deer among them. Uh, we could see animals that just like can't hang at all and they have to go. And so that's sharp-tailed grouse, prairie chickens, elk, and others. Yeah. And then this middle ground where like animals like bobwhites and quail are still doing okay in our ag landscapes, but sometimes they mess up. And the goal is to try to set the stage in those landscapes so that they don't mess up more often than they do it right. And if, as long as they still are able to find places to safely nest in those landscapes uh, and not too many of them fall for the trap, like do the maladapted behavior and have a nest, for example, in the cover crop field, then the population will be able to survive. Gotcha. So, you know, this we have this gigantic footprint where um, agriculture and uh, and livestock play a huge role in, you know, almost every family. You know, like I'm not directly a farmer, but I I farming was in my family, right? It, like mm -hmm. we're we're not too far disconnected from every person in the state of Iowa being connected to that, that source of income. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, what are some of the biggest kickbacks we get from people making their money 
off of, you know, earning, I shouldn't say making their money, earning a living off of livestock and agriculture um, when it comes to conservation uh, of the landscape? And how have you guys like educated them that, you know, man, it, it, it may suck for you, but this is the benefit you're going to get from it. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, we kind of see all kinds, you know, many people that I work with just because like I'm attracted to them and they're attracted to me like farm and really like wildlife on their farm. And because they derive their livelihood and spend all their time out in the farm, uh, they know a ton about wildlife and wildlife habitat and they like to tinker with stuff and improve habitat. So like, that's the best, right? Like that's sort of the dream scenario. The opposite end of that spectrum would be people that, um, just couldn't really care less, like just couldn't be bothered to like steward wildlife and wildlife habitat on their lands. Um, a challenge we find, and I don't want to overgeneralize at all, but like one challenge we find is that's like maybe that's maybe more true on rented ground where people don't necessarily have the stake in like ensuring, for example, the healthy soils on that farm for the next hundred years. Like they're just thinking about a, a one-year lease or a couple-year lease. Um, and so, again, that doesn't mean that there aren't people that rent land that do amazing things because I know some of them and they do wonderful things. But uh, that is maybe a generalization that we can make in much of Iowa's farmland, particularly through generations of, of intergenerational transfer, is rented because yeah. people aren't on the farm. And so, so that's definitely a challenge. Um, I like, you know, when I get an audience with a farmer or landowner, I just like to tell the cool stories of wildlife that we find out there. Like, for example, you know, in a couple of weeks, probably three or four more weeks, bobolinks will be back and bobolinks will have spent their winter on farms in central South America and then flown all the way up from central South America up through central America. Some of them will have crossed the Gulf of Mexico and then they arrive back on our farms and hang out in like in our pastures and hay fields until they fly back to those South American farms. Like I think those kind of stories that wildlife in Iowa hold and harbor are the things that you can tell farmers or anybody that spends time outside to sort of spur their interest. So no longer is a bobolink just some anonymous blackbird with a white head that makes a funny noise, but it's this bird that's a blackbird with a white head, makes a funny noise that's pretty conspicuous, and it flies, I don't know how many thousands of miles, 8,000 miles a year uh, between its wintering areas and its summer areas. Like, that's a pretty remarkable story, and I think there's just like an intrinsic obligation to protect something that's that fascinating and that interesting um and so those are the kind of things that i just like i guess i'm an optimist in that way like i just feel like people need to hear those stories and there's so many of those right all the monarchs that were here last september on a mountainside in mexico right now um you know upland sandpipers do that same distance migration other things there's you know uh sandhill cranes that are in Western Iowa that could be in Russia a month later. Um, just like there's so many cool examples of yeah. birds that, uh, of animals that do these kind of, these kind of remarkable movements and behaviors uh, that are just worth sharing. And I think as people start to understand those, then they can find places on their farms where they can have wildlife habitat and it doesn't cut into the bottom line. And in some places, uh, like the case of like really cool work that Pheasants Forever is doing with Precision Ag, um, it actually can improve the bottom line because you can take portions of the field that are not profitable out of production, uh, create wildlife habitat there, get a CRP payment for them, and uh, take that profit loss area off your balance sheet and make it a profitable uh, part of the farm. So there's yeah. like all these win-wins um, that that we just try to encourage people on. And that's what we do with the education and just trying to bring uh, bring a bunch of people along to make uh, Iowa a better place for wildlife and for all of us that like you and me and your listeners that love wildlife and want to make sure we have them here for, for, for recreation and for our kids and everybody else. Yeah. Another thing that I kind of want to talk on real quick before uh, we, you got to go is I read an article, this is a while ago, about the lack of pollinators in some yeah. some Midwestern states. So um, yeah. can you talk to us a little bit about, I guess, the state of the union on pollinators like bees and other uh, insects? Yeah. Yeah. So 
a great question. There's over 300 species of bees native to Iowa, which is just like a remarkable fact, I think. And then other uh, species of insects, there's just remarkable diversity, like almost 2,000 species of butterflies and moths found in Iowa. Um, and, uh, and then uh, a bunch of pollinating insects um, in addition to just bees and, and butterflies that are sort of the most charismatic of them. Um, you're right that insect populations generally have declined drastically globally. We do attribute some of that to um, uh, pesticide, widespread pesticide use across the across the globe, and uh, also attribute a lot of that to land use change. Here in Iowa, the best example, I already talked about the monarch, but it is just an easy one to talk about because there's been so much research on it. Monarch is, of course, a pollinating insect, not a particularly important pollinator, but a pollinator no less. Um, and their uh, populations have declined uh, considerably since um, even just the 90s. And one of the things that has driven that decline is like we were talking about earlier, uh, the loss of weedy fields, uh, places that would have had flowering plants and also milkweeds that the monarch needs to survive um, being taken out of the landscape. And so the loss of that sort of diversity in the landscape is the big challenge. And um, the places where we can get that back is like, mowing less like so many people just love to recreational recreationally mow like just giant acreages because we don't have any better ideas of what to do with them like those are areas where we could have habitat for pollinators and pheasants and quail and a bunch of other wildlife uh and not sort of affect the bottom line in any way um fence rows and roadsides and those kind of places not spraying those or not mowing those can be places to have flower flower nectar resources that are critical for sustaining pollinator populations. Uh, and then, of course, these marginal areas in crop fields or in pastures where we can have uh, larger dedicated tracts of, of grassland vegetation can be really important. And then, of course, I, I would get yelled at, and I probably will, by my colleagues that work in forested environments because I tend to think mostly about grassland and wetlands, but forests are critically important for pollinators. In, in forested environments, we have challenges related to invasive species like garlic mustard and honeysuckle that have outcompeted spring wildflowers that are really important for many native bees. Um, and then also just those invasive species have depressed the diversity of native trees and shrubs that those uh, those insects are often very dependent on. So yeah. there's so many modifications of this landscape. I mean, you could just go on and on and, um, but yeah, we just got to find ways to try to put that, put those pieces back together where we can. All right. Last question on a scale of like one to 10, where would you uh, rate the balance of wildlife to farming practices currently in the state of Iowa? Yeah. Um, I guess oh, it's a hard question to answer. I mean, I don't. Are you optimistic? I mean, uh, do, I, do you see like this, the continuing trend of like every single inch of yeah. of the ground uh, getting, you know, going into some kind of production or do you see people right. starting to realize, okay, well, this is important, but this is also important. Yeah. Well, that. I, I'm I'm optimistic on this, and many of my colleagues here are as well, because if we weren't, I don't think you could do this work, because it is a hard place to work, for sure. I mentioned I grew up in Indiana. I went to school in Ohio, worked in Wisconsin, went to school in South Dakota. I mean, I've been to every corner of the Corn Belt, landed in Iowa. Uh, I don't, I haven't ever, I haven't, you know, there's nothing that surprises me anymore. Um, it kills me just as much as it kills anybody else to see a wetland getting drained or a fence row getting ripped out or a... Uh, marginal area in a field being converted from grassland to uh, row crop production. And so uh, that kind of stuff, I, to be totally honest, wears on me. Um, but what heartens me is the conversations about things like soil health and water quality and layering on top of that wildlife conservation. And so um, things like the monarch butterfly and the rusty patch bumblebee, um, and even pheasant declines have helped elevate those conversations. And there's just no scenario where we're not going to, we're going to get away with kind of allowing the amount of nutrient pollution that happens in our waterways to continue. And so something has to change in these agricultural landscapes to address all the nitrogen and phosphorus that moves into the river and ultimately the Gulf of Mexico and hurts shrimp farmers down there, among others. 
And to do that up here, we need to put wildlife habitat on the ground. Like we need wetlands, we need buffer strips, we need prairie strips, we need more pasture, we need uh, depression, like wet areas, depressional areas and crop fields to be taken out of production and put into native prairie um, and other things. And that's what gets me excited. And so I mentioned before, like, that wildlife used to be a byproduct of production practices in these landscapes. I'm 100% convinced that if we took very seriously the challenges of water quality, particularly nutrient losses in these landscapes, that wildlife, many of the farmland wildlife that you and I enjoy and have been talking about today, would again become a byproduct of production operations because those production operations would no longer be working in the wet spots. They would no longer be on the really erosion-prone hillsides. They would have wetlands where the drain tile, before the drain tile goes into the ditch or stream, it would go through a wetland or go through a saturated riparian buffer that would take the nitrogen out before it goes off to the Gulf of Mexico. If we fix those nutrient problems, which we need to fix unequivocally, um, then we're going to have a lot more wildlife habitat and we're going to have pheasant hunting and bobwhite hunting and deer hunting and everything else uh, for generations to come. So I'm, I'm optimistic about it, to be honest. I don't think I could do this work if I wasn't optimistic. <laughs> that's um, a fact. And so that's kind of what, that's, that's where I rest. And I just like appreciate the opportunity to come on your podcast and talk about these bright spots and these opportunities for conservation in these working landscapes. And, and uh, any chance I get, I like beat my, my fist on the table and say, these are win-win opportunities. It's not one or the other. We can, we can have healthy soils, clean water, wildlife habitat, profitable farms and resilient rural communities uh, if we work if we take real seriously putting these you know scientific based conservation practices out on the landscape where they need to be uh, we'll leave it at that because i think that was the best uh, outro uh, that we could have gotten out of you so i'll tell you i'll tell you this man adam thank you very much for your time uh, i appreciate you coming on and, and uh, schooling us today and uh, i definitely want to have you on again yeah, I'd love that. It was a lot of fun today. Thanks for what you're doing with the education and, and have a great day.